Well, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Gene Panasanka here with Shade and Unfiltered. Um, this is a channel where we speak with business owners, professionals, attorneys, uh, agents, uh, CPAs, all in an effort to really facilitate interaction between small businesses and corporate executives. Uh, we're fortunate here to have Charles McCormick, which is an attorney based out of New York City, Midtown Manhattan. And um, again, uh, Charles has been in business for quite a few years. And uh, Charles, welcome to the channel. Thanks, Gene. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely, Charles. So again, I have, I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with you in some capacities over years, over time. And I know that you've been bringing uh, some, some very substantial value to, to, to the clients with your level of expertise, advice. So why don't you share with the audience, uh, you know, how long you've been in business, you know, what kind of practice sure. you're on and your clients. Yep. So McCormick and O'Brien was formed in January of 2004. Our other name partner, uh, my partner, Liam O'Brien, who runs our dispute resolution group, uh, was a college classmate of mine. And I guess that's one of the first pointers I give for anyone who's thinking about starting a business is that you should know who it is you're doing business with. And obviously Liam and I knew each other for many, many years before we started this business. We started in 2004, so I guess that means we're in our 17th year. We have two principal um, practice groups. The first, as I mentioned, is the litigation group, and that's commercial disputes with particular specialty in the financial services industry, which is cases that are brought before and involve the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA. That is the self-regulatory organization that governs the broker-dealer industry, less formally known as Wall Street. My group is the corporate group. We advise companies and investment funds on a wide variety of corporate transactions. And one way to think about it is Anywhere that your business interacts with the law, we seek to provide legal advice. So that's us in a nutshell. Well, that's an excellent, uh, again, response to the question, Charles. Definitely appreciate it. Uh, in, in, in the environment which is becoming more and more complex, uh, I know because, again, in my line of business, we're dealing with an awful lot of regulations. Uh, in your opinion, what are you seeing you know, happening in the last few years? Do we get more regulations that the businesses, you know, from startups to existing, you know, uh, corporate entities, they need to comply with, or you are seeing reduction of those regulations and the ease of doing business. Well, I think that would probably be its own topic, Gene. So I'll give you just a few snippets. Right. And so earlier I mentioned FINRA. Right. Now FINRA in its current form is a relatively new organization. I think it's no more than 10 or 15 years old, but I didn't have a chance to prepare for that before this, uh, this session. FINRA was formed by the merger of two predecessor organizations, the National Association of Securities Dealers, or NASD, and another organization whose name escapes me. And at the time of the merger, there were a number of people in the community who observed that one of the purposes for the merger 
was to weed out smaller organizations within the financial services industry. And the reason was because the compliance costs of maintaining your registration and complying with all the regulations was gonna be so prohibitive that a small organization wouldn't be able to realistically meet those obligations. You couple that with the observation and really not the observation, but the fact that 80% of registered broker dealers in the United States have fewer than 10 employees. Now think about that for a second, Jane. A well-known broker dealer might be Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. Those organizations have hundreds of employees. JP Morgan, same thing. They don't have hundreds. They actually have tens of thousands of employees. A great number, an increasing number of those employees are in the compliance field. And so, for example, when you read a report that JP Morgan hired 15,000 new employees in a given quarter, more often than that, more often than not, what that means is that JP Morgan hired 25,000 compliance people and fired 10,000 bankers for a net gain of 15,000. And that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but the point is the same, that the compliance environment in financial services and other areas has gotten a lot more demanding. And there's two sides of that. You know, one is that we need that so that we can prevent another WorldCom, another Enron. The catastrophes at the beginning of the 21st century that gave rise to what we now call the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Rolling the movie forward a little bit, we also want to prevent the tragedies that occurred in 2008 and 2009 with what's now known as the subprime debacle. And so whenever we have one of these dramatic episodes, it's fair to expect that the legislative, the government response is going to be toward greater regulation rather than less regulation. But it's a pendulum that swings both ways. And so if you're watching any political campaign, it's not just this year, it goes back at least as early, you know, at least to the beginning of my lifetime a very popular political position is to identify yourself as the candidate who will reduce regulation and who will get the government out of business. And that works. I think probably the most emblematic example of that sentiment is Ronald Reagan, who is today still remembered for his famous line that the most dangerous words in the English language are, hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, and another great line of Ronald Reagan, if you remember, Charles, you know, the government is not a solution, it's a problem, right? Exactly, exactly. So the pendulum swings both ways. And I think recently what we've seen in some industries is increased regulations. And I think you've seen the criticism of increased regulations that it discourages and dampens innovation. And let's take financial services as an example. Uh, just because it happens to be where we are. One of the trends that we're seeing in venture capital, 
and uh, entrepreneurial activity is a trend that is known as distributed finance or DeFi. And examples of that would be cryptocurrency. Examples of that would be lending and offering credit products to those who might not have traditionally qualified under uh, in applicable credit review scores, right? So your FICO score essentially determines whether or not you're gonna get a credit card, um, whether, you're not, whether or not you're gonna get a home mortgage, what your rate's gonna be, what your credit limit's gonna be. And there is an entire industry that is premised on the idea that the existing system, existing system is completely ridiculous. And so when you put those two trends together, it is true that both there is a lot more regulation in financial services, particularly in the banks and the brokerages. Um, but the flip side of it is that this is a time right now when there has been enormous innovation by very small players. And companies that we think of as very big players right now, Robinhood being an example, started out the same way that any number of companies started out two guys in a room uh, with a really good idea. And so the typical argument that regulation dampens innovation just may not be supported empirically. I heard someone say once that some of the greatest entrepreneurs of their generation, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Craig McCaw, New York's own Mike Bloomberg, started their companies at a time when capital gains rates were at least twice what they are now. And so the argument that if we raise capital and gains- And the interest people, rates to get a loan sure, were the double yeah. digits. I mean, Paul Volcker, yeah. remember the days, you know, 15, 16, 17% interest rate that's per annum. You know, that's right. Here, just that's right. Loan, so, just imagine putting yourself in a position where you're trying to launch the business as a startup, you know, and paying 17, 18% per year in interest alone, that, that's preposterous yeah. by today's standards, but the people are getting, you know, two, 3% rate and they're not happy, they're still shopping, trying to save an eighth or percentage point. Uh, you know. Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's arguments on both sides and I, I don't necessarily have the answer. What I know is that entrepreneurship is increasingly popular and I think that's always the case. I think the younger generation, you know, they say the millennials are extremely entrepreneurial, but you know, I'm not a millennial, and I. Uh, you know, when I was when I was their age, uh, I, I probably would have resembled that remark. And I, I, I have a suspicion. You know, Mike Bloomberg's not a millennial, but uh, you know, he probably fits that mold. Larry Ellison, Craig McCaw, they fit those molds. Right. And so, you know, the idea that uh, regulation controls innovation just isn't empirically true. It obviously can make innovation easier or harder. But the flip side of that is that when innovation becomes too easy, you have a lot of good money chasing a lot of bad ideas. And, you know, that presented itself to our society in what we now know as the dot-com bust, where you had companies that were going public with no history of profits, no current profits, and, and candidly, no hope of, of any profits and, and getting billion dollar public valuations. And if you contrast that to the companies that are going public today, uh, the Palantirs of the world, 
um, that just went public this week and you know, any number of these companies, uh, they're real businesses. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are making profits hand over fist, but what it means is that they have proven products, proven services, proven business models, they're generating revenues and the rate of revenues are increasing in some cases dramatically. Uh, and that's a, that's a deep contrast to some, but not all of the companies that we saw at the beginning of the 20th century in the dot that, that folded in the dot-com bust. So, you know, there's, there's no simple answer that governs all situations. I think regulation is necessary until it's not. Regulation is beneficial until it's not. Um, innovation is helpful until it's not. So there are people who will point to the fact that productivity in the United States has not increased with the dawn of the technology and the computer age as much as one would have expected. And if you compare it to earlier periods in US history with innovations like the steam engine and the railroad, I think you'll find that, you know, as just a pure mathematical matter, productivity increased a lot more than it's increased with the computer. So there are limits to innovation and entrepreneurship and there are limits to regulation. So true, so true. Charles, I know that a huge number of clients that both yourself and myself separately, you know, we've been advising and servicing, they're small businesses that really represent, you know, the bulk of the US economy. Uh, I know also that, that you had a very successful practice with New York Startup Academy. Um, I'd like to speak about the academy. I'd like to speak about how you took that entity from just a few hundred you know, members yeah. to really thousands and thousands of mm -hmm. people. Some of the businesses that grew into something which is pretty sizable and pretty successful in my opinion. So well, let's talk about that. So NYC Startup Academy is an organization, a community for entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs. And I want to focus on that latter part first. So what is an aspiring entrepreneur? An aspiring entrepreneur is someone who is very well educated, often highly trained at large organizations, whether that be JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs and financial services or Google or Oracle or Apple in uh, information technology or any number of your Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Pfizer, pharmaceuticals, um, but they fit a certain profile. They tend to be uh, younger professionals. They tend to be very ambitious. A number of them aren't really satisfied with their big corporate job and are excited at the prospect of becoming an entrepreneur, but aren't quite sure how to get there. And maybe that's because they have deep technical experience, but have never had a sales and marketing class and don't know how to go about selling a product. Or maybe it's because they're expert salespeople, but don't know how to code. So they, their own self-assessment is that they would love to be an entrepreneur, but don't feel that their, tool, that their toolkit is complete. So NYC Startup Academy, helps them in two ways. Number one, it helps them to build their toolkit. And the way that we do that is we conduct monthly uh, live events, not since March because of COVID, but uh, monthly live events that you've attended, where we try to bring in subject matter experts or 
entrepreneurs who have built companies, are building companies, uh, and can tell their story. In order to give aspiring entrepreneurs actionable intelligence about how it is they can become an entrepreneur and build their company. And then the other benefit of NYC Startup Academy is that it's a community of like-minded people seeking others. And so, you know, in my example, someone who has a deep coding background who needs a salesperson might come to Startup Academy and through that might meet someone who has a great sales background but can't code. And, you know, through, you know, just your normal networking process, they might discover that they share uh, a number of ideas, uh, common vision with respect to a particular business, and that they may have a personality fit that enables them to form a partnership and to pursue that idea. And so those are, those are really the goals of Startup Academy. And you're very kind to mention the success that we've had. So uh, I took over the Startup Academy, I believe in January of 2017. It had been formed, I don't know that by was who. the first time when I actually came to join yeah. one of your events. And it's yeah. amazing to see the progress. I mean, that exponential growth that you've mm -hmm. been able to deliver and grow that from the embryonic pretty much stage, you know, into what it became over years. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we started, when I took over the group, we'd had, uh, the group had about 126 members and had never done an event. And, you know, today we have thousands of members and until COVID, we did an event every month, uh, the third or fourth Wednesday of the month from 6 to 8 p.m. And I want to thank our sponsor, Citroen Cooperman, for being so gracious with its, uh, not just its resources, but also with its space and giving us a terrific venue for uh, conducting and hosting NYC Startup Academy. So great shout out to Citroen Cooperman for that. Um, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So the reason that NYC Startup Academy has remained relevant and the reason that it has grown so much is because it provides something that the market needs. And, you know, essentially that is the essence of entrepreneurship, right? Uh, if you can provide something that's missing in the market that it needs in a way that's affordable, accessible, understandable, then you can be an entrepreneur. And so NYC Startup Academy, by the same token, took an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial approach to a networking community. And the success, as you've mentioned, is reflected in the level of participation. That was an excellent point, Charles. I personally want to attest that I attended quite a few meetings, as you know well, and I found them extremely helpful, very informative, you know, between the speakers, you know, the panels that you have been organizing, you know, on a pretty much regular basis. I wish I could be attending more of those events, but again, I, I do my own events with my clients and have to attend you know, other, um, other venues, other places as well. But at the same time, I personally made incredible number of very helpful contacts. You know, some of them, they developed into very good relationships. Mm -hmm. And I personally feel very strongly that uh, the, the NYC Startup Academy has been able to provide a very good platform for not just aspiring, you know, startup businesses, but existing people uh, and existing businesses like myself. Uh, I've been a financial advisor for over 24 years now. Uh, time flies painfully fast as we can, as we can both attest, uh, but it's always nice to, you know, meet uh, interesting people, like-minded professionals with whom you can exchange ideas, you know, network, you know, uh, to see how as a team, you know, we can provide better 
uh, value, you know, by, by taking that holistic approach. Uh, we, we both know that we can be geniuses in our lines of business, but, you know, without legal protection, you know, no business can, can function, you know, for any reasonable amount of time. And, uh, and I lost track of how many times I would come across, you know, businesses. It's either a one-man show or two, two guys or two ladies, you know, that have some informal partnership, but they don't have anything legal in place. Uh, and it's beyond me how they cannot invest some time and money, yes, because unfortunately advice does cost money, you know, to sit down with an attorney and speak about the legal structure as opposed to running the practice as a sole proprietor, you know, um, or, or have some partnership agreement uh, formed with buy-sell agreement in place. Uh, I've seen countless number of cases where again, businesses would not have those kind of things in place. And that eventually very often would lead to a demise of the business. So can you talk about a couple of examples from your practice, why you know, having those kind of things in place would be critically important for the business? Yeah, in fact, I, I really appreciate that lead in, Gene, because that leads me to um, the founder accord. And so probably about five or six years ago, uh, a client came into my office with more or less the same, with more or less this fact pattern. He said, listen, I have been advising these guys with their startup for about a year. And they're very good with some things, but they're not so good with other things. And I'm really good with that. Right. And so I've been really helping them out. I've been introducing them to people. And, you know, all along I've kept my day job and uh, they've offered me time and time again, you know, you why don't you join us? Why don't we be partners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that conversation continued and I continued to help them and they continued to make all these promises to the point where my client felt that he understood what his deal was and his deal involved uh, a full-time role at a certain salary and a certain amount of equity and, uh, you know, recognition. And this is very important in the entrepreneurial community uh, recognition as a co-founder along with the guys he'd been advising. You roll the movie forward and they finally get a substantial amount of financing. Enough that my client decided, well, you know what? I've been helping these guys for long enough. I've added a lot of value. They've made a very fair offer to me. I think I'm going to leave my job and join this new company full time as a co-founder. And he tells the guys he's been working with this and they say, great, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, we should get the lawyers involved and, uh, you know, here's the paperwork and, you know, just sign this and we're good to go. And he brings, you know, he looks at it and it's, uh, you know, it's a stack of papers about this thick. Three and and, you know, he doesn't know, he can't make heads or tails out of it. So he, he brings it to me. Right. And I look at it and I say, oh, you know, this is very nice. Yeah, um, it's great. What were your expectations? And he tells me his expectations. And then I have to tell him, you know, as he was sitting down at the time. So I didn't have to say, I uh, hope you're sitting down. I said, well, that's, that's not what you're being offered. And he started correcting me. He said, no, 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 no. That, that's exactly what I was offered. He's I, correcting I you, actually. He's telling all you these, Yeah, all these things. And I said, look, I'm not trying to pick a fight here, but I'm just telling you what the agreements say. And, you know, I, I used to call this, uh, I said to him, you know, yours is not an unfamiliar problem. I used to call it a Pete Best problem. Yeah. After the drummer of the Beatles, who was replaced 
before the Beatles became really famous by Ringo Starr. Right. So he's kind of the, you know, the, the fifth founder who kind of get kicked out before things got really interesting. But, you know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately for Reggie Brown, I no longer refer to it as Pete Best problem. So Reggie Brown was one of the original contributors to what is now SNAP, who in, in a lot of people's assessment was really the brains behind the company. And for whatever reason that I don't know, uh, he was pushed out of the company and really uh, until he complained, didn't, didn't get anything. So, you know, this is now known as a Reggie Brown problem. So he's telling me all this and I'm listening and I had to tell him, look, uh, you know, you've got a terrible choice here, right? You can not sign the papers, in which case I understand you're just out. Right. Or you can sign the papers, in which case I understand you will get a much worse deal than you were expecting. And you'll have agreed to it. So I don't have a good answer for you here. It's, oh, I want to sue them. And I said, well, you could do that. But what do you, what's the basis of your lawsuit? Right. Some emails that you guys exchanged, some conversations that you guys had. That's going to be a tough case in court. So I created the founder record specifically for this problem. And the idea behind the founder record, imagine, uh, you know, three or four guys who meet at NYC Startup Academy and each have complementary skills and each have other things going on. And maybe several of them are actually working on a number of startups simultaneously. That's not uncommon these days. They think they might have something, but they know about what can happen. They know about Reggie Brown. They know about Eduardo Saverin. And they're thinking to themselves, well, I like this idea, but I don't really know this other guy or these other guys. And you know, I'm not sure how much I really want to devote myself to this project if I'm not really clear legally on what I get if it works out. And as you were saying, you know, you need to get lawyers involved. Well, the, the, the problem is that's expensive. And so this is the common objection I keep hearing, because, again, my my job yeah. as a financial advisor is to make sure that we have the whole team in place, which is taking a holistic approach and we're protecting mm -hmm. the client and we're advising a client, you know, on the most comprehensive level. And unfortunately, I'm seeing a very disproportionate allocation of funding to pay for the legal advice as opposed to the rest of the budget. Yeah. And the advice is common, you know, hey, you know, we can't afford it. And, and my response is always, hey, you know, if anything else, you you cannot afford not to have this kind of advice. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. it will protect the whole thing going forward. Yeah. But the observation is that at the early stage, you know, I like to give the example. If I received five business plans in 1994 for selling books on the Internet, there is absolutely no way I would have been able to identify Amazon as a clear winner. In fact, so if I think back to that time, uh, you know, there were these companies like Barnes and Noble and Borders that were already selling books. And Barnes and Noble was extremely popular. It was almost a, a place to hang out socially uh, for young people. So you know, the cafes, you yeah, know, it's, the it's hard to imagine. Hours, yeah, you know? it's, it's hard to imagine at the time that they were going to be the guys, the, these guys at Amazon were going to be the guys who made it. Or, you know, when Facebook launched, there was a company called MySpace 
that remember that very well as well yeah just owned the industry and you know it's one of these things where you know if someone came to you today with uh, an idea for a search engine company you would think to yourself well how are these guys going to compete with google and you know the same the same logic would have applied Uh, back when facebook was launched i'm sure that people would have told them, well, how in the world are you going to compete with MySpace? I mean, they're- Remember, it's very, very well. Yes, so much argument has been made, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but so the idea is that every time you come up with a good idea, you don't necessarily want to form a corporation and hire lawyers and, you know, do everything that you really should be doing. Have some partnership agreement, buy-sell agreement, what happens if you are partnered up by the truck tomorrow, you're going to get sued by the- by the beneficiaries, by his family, you know, asking for a half, you know, whatever his stake has been in the company. Yeah. Yeah, if I knew today how my company was going to be doing in five years, I would be able to instantly make an assessment whether it was a worthwhile investment, but no one can do that. And so we created the Founder Accord specifically to enable founders and prospective founders to work together and collaborate prior to the formal incorporation and ramping up and you know, bringing in all the lawyers, so to speak, of a company um, in a way that they would have comfort that if that did move forward, they would have some protection. But the real thinking behind the Founder Accord is this, and I lay this out, this is on our website um, that I'm sure you can make available. Uh, and the real thinking is this, that people will say commonly that 80% of new businesses fail. And I don't disagree with that. But the question is, why do they fail? And one of the reasons that I think they fail is that people don't devote the resources to something in its nascent stages because they don't know what the payoff is. And so what you have, if you think about it, are uh, false negatives. And so if you look at the venture capital industry writ large, you could take the position that the job of a venture capitalist in selecting portfolio companies is to weed out false positives. True. And those are guys who pitch you that they have the next Google, the next Pfizer, the next Oracle, the next this, the next that, right? But you know, in reality, don't because that's not really easy to do. But the truth of the matter is, I think the better VCs are always alert to the false negatives. And those are companies or even ideas that have tremendous potential, but don't get developed because the founders aren't comfortable devoting the resources that are required to make it a success. Because no matter how good an idea you have, no matter how great a team you have, and no matter how great your timing in the market is, it's always going to require a lot of effort to succeed. And sports is a great example of that. So if you look at your most talented athletes, the NBA is great because, uh, you know, they're, they're, all, uh, they're all so tall. And so, you know, to be an NBA player, you first of all have to have the good fortune of being, you know, six feet, eight inches tall. And that's fantastic. But I think What gets missed in that is the guys who are six feet, eight inches tall work incredibly hard to hone their skills and to protect and to perfect their craft. And the reason is that in much the same way that just being particularly tall isn't enough to make you an NBA superstar, 
just having a great idea, just having great timing, just having the right team in place doesn't guarantee you success. And with a lot of people, it's opportunity cost. So I could have been a great NBA player, but I got my CPA. Well, you know, that's, that's not an irrational move to make, right? Or I could have developed this business, but instead I went to business school. I could have developed this business, but instead I took a promotion at Wells Fargo. That's, that's not a dumb idea. Uh, you know, it's a lot, you know, the way I explain it, it's a lot easier to explain to your aunt that you got promoted at Citibank than it is that you quit your job after four years of college because you wanted to start up a business with some guy from the Ukraine who you just met. <laughs> so uh, what the Founder Accord does on a, on a little bit uh, larger level is it addresses the issue of false negatives. And the theory is that within that universe of false negatives, there are a lot of really fantastic companies that fail for the wrong reasons. That fail, not because they're not great ideas, not because they're not timely, not because they're not well executed, but because they don't get the attention that they deserve. And hopefully the founder accord will align incentives correctly that founders will devote the energy and the effort that's required to make a successful benefit business, which at the end of the day benefits everybody. Excellent points, Charles. Thanks so much for sharing them. Just wanted to give our audience an idea of some of the clients that you have been advising over time. And one of the biggest names I can think of is Benny VC. Um, sure. So you, you want to speak just briefly without going to details, you know, of your relationship of with the company Benny? and the level of their activities. Yeah. Benny VC is an early stage venture fund that's about three years old and has made at this point about 16 or 17 investments. Um, it is a diversified early stage venture fund. It was founded by uh, my good friend, Cyril Campagnoli, who comes from a real estate background, but was always intrigued by innovation and venture. And uh, was so much so that he created Benny VC in order to capitalize on the number of opportunities um, that have arisen in the market since it began. And you know, this period that we're in right now, and I'm not talking about COVID, but you know, the last 10 or 15 years have been just a tremendous environment for innovation. And if you think about what's going on in data, in genomics, in autonomous vehicles, and artificial intelligence, um, in blockchain, in any number of these industries that have frankly become buzzwords because they're so common and because they're so enticing, and to a, to a lesser extent because no one really understands what they are. Um, you know, th this is a terrific time to be an energetic young entrepreneur. And Chiro saw that coming from an industry that, you know, frankly, isn't really known for innovation. Uh, real estate is viewed, I think, by financial advisors, and I think rightly, as a safe, secure, stable, uh, maybe even stodgy industry um, that isn't really known for great innovation. So Chiro's personality is the opposite, and he's been tremendously successful in real estate and wanted to do something that really catered to his interests. 
Uh, and that's where Benny, v, Benny VC comes in. And I think Benny VC's premise is very much that to benefit from the success of entrepreneurship, um, you need to look at companies in their earliest stages. And you know, who wouldn't have wanted to invest in Facebook in 2004? Who wouldn't have wanted to invest in Google in 1999? Uh, you know, these would have been just you know, tremendous investments. Uh, I'm sure in your industry, you know, your clients ask you, well, you know, how have I done relative to S&P, right? If the S&P was up 6%, you know, Gene, I'm sure your clients are all up 8 or 9%. Um, but what if you could tell your clients, wow, you know, you're up 15,000%. Uh, so those are the opportunities that investing in a very successful, ultimately, early stage company can afford. And if you look at what some of the legendary venture capital firms uh, have done in terms of returns, uh, what you'll find is that their greatest returns were in companies where they got in very early. Um, and those returns were just astronomical. In other words, it's, it's not even, uh, it, it's almost nonsensical to try to measure the returns using normal metrics, right? So a normal metric might be, you know, X percent or X percent above S&P. Um, you know, these are companies that do way, way more than that. Now, of course, there's a trade-off because if you invest in a hundred real estate companies in five years, uh, probably a hundred of them will still be around. Maybe not, but, you know, certainly most of them will still be around. If you invest in a hundred early stage companies in five years, if you're lucky, maybe four or five of them will still be around and the rest of them will have completely failed. And that just sounds ominous, right? In the example that I gave, there's a 95 or a 96% failure rate. So ask yourself, would you get on a plane that had a 95% chance of crashing? Probably not. And yet that's the venture capital industry. And here's a silver lining. Those four or five companies in my example that do make it, make up for all the losses in the earlier companies. Because and it's just simple arithmetic. If you invest a million dollars, you know that your downside is limited to a million dollars, but your upside is unlimited. And so if you invest a million dollars and 95% of those companies or $950,000 of your money goes to zero, you've lost $950,000. But if those five companies do remarkably well, that $50,000 could become $50 million, $500 million. And so if you look at the portfolio as a whole, what you'll see is that two or three percent, maybe five percent of companies in any given portfolio in the venture space, not in you know the larger space, um, but in the venture space, make up for anywhere between 90 and 100 percent of a portfolio's returns. And so that's what Benny VC is after, and that, that's really uh, Ciro Campagnoli's vision for Benny VC. And you know, thus far, it's a, it's a three-year-old fund. Uh, I don't believe it's had any exits, but it's had a number of companies, uh, a number of which are based right here in New York. Uh, a good example would be Rhino, which was Benny VC's initial investment that is changing the way that people rent an apartment. And so, you know, it, when I was looking for an apartment in New York City, uh, I knew that if I found an apartment that I liked, I had to write a check to the landlord of one or in my case, two months 
as a security deposit. And that was money yeah, that I wouldn't see. That's not a bad deal because a lot of times they're asking for three or four sure. months. Sure, yeah. And, and that's money that I couldn't use and money that I wouldn't see until the end of the lease. And so I wish at the time someone would have said to me, you know what, Charles, don't write me a security deposit. Um, you're going to pay 10 or $15 more a month in rent. Is that okay? Well, I guess that's okay. And you don't have to give me a security deposit. What a great proposition. Uh, well, that's Rhino. So, and that's New York based. Uh, Acern is New York based. This is a, a data company. It's a big data company. And I told you that's an emerging trend um, that takes all the different sources of data in a large organization. And think about that. You know, you've got uh, your faxes that come in and then you've got your emails and then you've got your regular mail and you've got this data database that the sales and marketing guys have and you've got this database that the accountants have, but they don't talk to one another. What if you could integrate all of that? That's a CERN. And there well, are a number of- Some truly fascinating trends living through yeah. some very exciting times. Uh, and solar. these are New York City based. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Link uh, Technology was Benny's, uh, Benny VC's most recent investment. Link Technologies is based in Brooklyn. Um, it has created a communications device that works outside of uh, a grid, outside of an, an internet grid or, or anything like that. So, so we just had hiking, a tremendous hurricane as well. No, you know, just a few, yeah. few weeks back and then the grid was basically, you know, that's right. The grid goes some down. Of the places have been out of power for days or weeks. So that would mm -hmm. be probably. Or if you go outside of the grid, let's say that you're hiking in the wilderness. Right. And there are no cell towers and there's no connectivity and you get lost. You're out of luck. But if you have the link product, then you're able to communicate with the world. Yeah, the evolution of some industries is, is nothing mm -hmm. short of, uh, of amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to point out to our esteemed audience that we're not distributing any legal or investment advices here. We're just having a general conversation for we're anything specific. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. they do need to get in touch with their attorneys and financial advisors because yeah. everything should be customized and, uh, and tailored. Uh, but that's, I'm, I'm, I apologize if I went off script, but that's what Ben. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, focused the, on. I'm really excited about what Chiro Campagnoli is doing with that fund. Absolutely, Charles. Absolutely. So um, if somebody is looking to retain your legal services, you know, get your expertise, either it comes down to, you know, getting a business formation or startup or anything more complex for the existing corporations that you've been advising for many, many years, uh, you want to share your address, email address, phone number, and then we're going to also put it in the in the link below in the description. So go ahead, please, Charles. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I think the best way to reach me, Gene, is through you. Um, but our our law, our website is uh, mcoblaw.com, and uh, you know, I'm I'm reachable on LinkedIn, and uh, happy to chat with anyone who uh, you know who has. Uh, a question where law and business interact. Excellent, Charles. Well, thank you so much again for getting on this channel. Um, I hope our audience is going to find your uh, your thoughts helpful in uh, in getting their businesses going uh, and taking them to the next level. And I do hope that this lockdown will end shortly so we can resume our regular day-to-day -day activities and I can see you uh, at, uh, at one of the events. Either it's going to be Chamber of Commerce or Startup Academy event. So again, Charles, very much. Uh, thanks very much. And then best wishes, okay? Thank you, Gene. Until it was soon. Great speaking Thank to you, Charles. Today. Pleasure is mine. Thank you very much.